Welcome to ESO Offstage. I'm your host and ESO double bassist, Max Cardilli. My earliest memory of music is being brought to an early childhood music program. When I was handed a triangle and a stick to tap it with, I passed the triangle to my mother, but kept the stick, declaring that I wanted to be the conductor. Of course, at that time, I thought that being the conductor meant getting to work on a train. This episode, I finally find out what being a conductor really means by speaking of four conductors who talk about their work on and off the podium. But first, how did we get here? Here's D.T. Baker, who writes the program notes for the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra and presents online courses and lectures about music. There was once a time, many an orchestral musician will tell you, when there were no conductors and the world was an Eden where musicians roamed free. And there was once a time, conductors will tell you, when there were no conductors and the world was a dystopian hellscape where musicians roamed free. The truth is, like nearly everything connected with orchestral music that we know and love, the art of the conductor evolved over a long period of time. But it stands to reason that when the number of musicians gathered to make music together reaches a certain quantity, some sense of direction is a pretty good idea. And it's the nature of that direction and how it has changed that is at the heart of our story. We have to keep in mind that until the Romantic era created the self-sustaining artist who made their living on the basis of the acceptance of their work by the public and by patrons of art, musicians now revered as immortal, such as Bach and Mozart, were really just regarded as, as part of the working class, a guild of artisans, really, and they were happy to be thought of as such. So those who just kept time or helped to ensure that the entrances were done correctly were assistants to these professionals. Even as late as Schumann, who referred to conducting as a necessary evil, and Verdi, who felt that conductors didn't even merit their own bows after a performance, conductors, as we can see, were nowhere near the messianic figures that they would become. And yet, there always seems to have been a need for it. Going back to our friends, the ancient Greeks, the rhythm of both choral and of instrumental music was marked back then by the stamping on the ground with the right foot, to which would be attached a piece of iron. Now, some like to think that this may be the origin of the later practice of raising the hand for a weak beat and then lowering it for a strong one. It was a Bohemian named Wenceslaus Philomathus in 1512 who actually criticized extravagance in music and felt that those who lead the performance should do so by example rather than by overly extravagant gestures. And among his criticisms, he observed that some cantors would conduct from a fighting stance with their hands held up as if, as he put it, threatening injury towards his colleagues. In 1549, Spanish friar and composer Juan Bermudo mentioned with disapproval those who would hit the music book with a staff so that it could be heard all over the church. In 1665, Christopher Simpson, 
uh, wrote that in order to keep musical time, quote, we use a constant motion of the hand, or if the hand be otherwise employed, we use the foot. If that also be engaged, the imagination to which these are but assistant is able of itself to perform that office, unquote. The word stroke was a term used by Elizabethan music scholar and composer Thomas Morley in 1597 and defined as a successive motion of the hand directing the quantity of every note and rest in the song with equal measure. Now that is starting to sound a lot like actual conducting. Now, for a long time, of course, conducting was largely a matter of cueing and it was done from within the orchestra. Generally, if there was a keyboard involved, cues would be given from there. As well, the job could also be done from the first violinist's desk. But as performances became grander, the musical forces grew. Operas and ballets would, would often involve multiple ensembles, and multiple conductors were felt to be needed. For example, the first violinist would lead the musicians, while another conductor would be there to cue the dancers or the singers. And in the days before electricity, I mean, let's face it, large performance spaces could make it hard to see someone's hand waving in a dimly lit space. So other devices were used, from rolls of paper to violin bows to even to the stamping of a staff on the floor. And in fact, the famous legend tells of French master musician Jean-Baptiste Lully, who was long the favorite of Louis XIV, who accidentally struck himself on the foot with his staff, wounding himself so significantly that the wound became infected and ultimately becoming the cause of Lully's death. That the first recorded death of a conductor came from his own hands, and not from a member of his orchestra, is worth noting. Now, time goes on, the size of the orchestra continues to grow, and to the standard Baroque complement of strings are now added woodwinds and brass, to the point where they become permanent members of the orchestra. Uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, for example, gives us the first symphonic performances by piccolo and trombone. So, the larger the orchestra gets the more difficult it becomes to lead it from a desk within the orchestra. Still, the normal way of doing things in this time, in the classical era, in the early Romantic, is for the composer of the music to lead the orchestra in the performance of it. In fact, there are illustrations of Mozart conducting that were used on pamphlets advertising the first production of his opera The Magic Flute in 1791. The full flower of the Romantic era in the early 19th century changed everything. The artist as a profession now puts them in control, for better or for worse. They now dictate thematic content, and the interpretation of music becomes a very personal thing. Still, most of the time, the composer led the orchestra. But with Felix Mendelssohn and others in the early decades of the 19th century, concerts began to scour the treasures of the past more and more, rather than relying on the latest new thing all the time. In fact, Mendelssohn is credited with reviving interest in the music of Bach, which had been sort of relegated to the musical backbenches following the great composer's death in 1750. 
The era of the conductor as interpreter has now arrived. And let's face it, if it's not your music, I think it takes a pretty confident person to stand in front of a few score professional musicians and assert your artistic will on someone else's music. And two of the most important figures in establishing the conductor as the final word did not lack for confidence. And interestingly, I think a large part of the reason that Hector Berlioz and Richard Wagner would advance the art, if you like, of conducting is that neither Berlioz nor Wagner played a musical instrument. I mean, they could, you know, get by on a piano, but for them, the orchestra itself was their instrument. And so mastery of that became crucial to their art. Nowadays, we, we take the almost complete separation of composer, conductor, soloist, and orchestral musician as a matter of course. But there is a very direct line. For example, from Wagner to the great German conducting tradition, from, from Wagner to von Bülow to, to Furtwangler to Carrion, is a remarkably straight line. And the notion of conductor as orchestral pop star becomes a thing. Orchestras became famous largely due to the eras during which a particular conductor was their music director. And for many classical music fans, naming a conductor instantly calls to mind an orchestra, and vice versa. But even school kid Peter Parker knew that with great power came great responsibility. And there are books filled with the overreach of many a conductor with many an orchestra. George Zell, for example, in his directorship of the Cleveland Orchestra, was talked about as being so total that one of his musicians joked that if he could, Zell would be in the box office selling tickets. Arturo Toscanini was equally infamous. His tantrums at rehearsals were the stuff of legend, snapping batons and dyspeptic tirades, and once declaring that the orchestra's playing was an insult to both him and Beethoven, putting both on equal footing. Recent decades have seen a more cooperative relationship between a music director and their orchestra, and the age of the despot seems largely to be behind us. So if the age of the despot is behind us, what is taking its place? I had the chance to speak with Daniel Bartholomew Poyser, who is an artist-in-residence and community ambassador for Symphony Nova Scotia, as well as being the Barrett Principal Education Conductor and community ambassador for the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. It's people like Daniel and my other guests who are redefining what it means to be a conductor in today's orchestras. What drew you into becoming a conductor? You know, when I was in grade two, my teacher, Mrs. Pauls, in Marion Carson School in Varsity, which may or may not be even. Oh, this is this is an Edmonton podcast. So why am I giving all these Calgary locations? I, I shouldn't even mention it, actually. Right? <laughs> I certainly will mention that I'm a Flames fan because that would get me in trouble. Yeah. Uh, anyways, okay, no more questions. Anyways, yeah, it's, it's an interview done. We are finished. Thank you, Daniel. And next, okay. Um, no, even though I'm from Calgary, super love Edmonton, all jokes aside, except for the Oilers, that vendetta remains, but everything else is good. We started just doing those patterns in grade two, actually. And I think I always just kind of had it, you know, in my um, 
I would all just conduct a lot of stuff for fun. I was very fortunate to be in Alberta and to have the, the music education systems that we have in Alberta that are set up. So that when I said, I want to play tuba, I was handed a tuba and my single parent family was able to afford, you know, the rental of that tuba. Go music education in Alberta. I always wanted to be a professional conductor. How did I know that I would love conducting and I wanted to be a conductor before I had ever conducted? I guess you kind of imagine what it would be like to be up there in front of the musicians. It's this nonverbal conversation, communication between the musicians of the orchestra and the conductor. The negotiation of how things will go is incredibly intimate, especially in performance. You can feel it. You can literally feel it underneath your hands, how people are responding. And it's not like one person's making a decision. It's this group mind, right? It's really fascinating. Like that's kind of the thrill of conducting. That's what gets you back, you know? How did I know that I would love that when I, you know, had only just started those lessons? I don't know. I don't know. But I think I made the right choice so far. So is conducting what you thought it was going to be? <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, it's both more and less than what I thought it would be. It's more challenging in different ways. I guess the breadth of it is quite challenging. What do I mean by that? You know, there's a book called From the Ground Up, and it's a pilot training manual. The very first sentence of this pilot training manual is, among other things, one of the things a pilot has to learn how to do is fly an airplane. But apart from that, and then it goes on for another 10 pages, right? <laughs> you think of all, all the stuff a pilot has to do, like, you know, they're a scientist and they're a weather person and they're a physicist and they're a mechanic and they're all these different things. It is really the same with the conductor. In order to be a good conductor, you also have to be a good administrator, a good speaker, a good people person, a good emailer. <laughs> you have to be a good programmer, a really good programmer. So it's challenging in that there are many things you have to do in order to do that job. And it's also, in a sense, it's a lot about the music, but the, the actual interaction with music, and I don't just mean concerts and rehearsals, but also just plain old working with music and studying music. Those are the pinnacle times. The actual work of being a conductor sometimes feels like uh, a vacation compared to all the work that you have to do to continue being a conductor. That by the time you get on stage, that's the fun part. And I, I didn't actually imagine that it was going to be as much fun actually conducting as it is because people look at me and they're like oh you look like you're having so much fun oh, it looks like it's such a great thing and i'm like actually what it looks like it's 10 times better than that conducting a professional orchestra is incredible cbc produced a documentary that follows daniel around on the job disruptor conductor available on cbc gem stream now i highly recommend checking it out to see the ways in which Daniel is breaking down barriers and disrupting the norm in his field looking back on the work that kind of naturally outflowed over the first six years of my conducting career. And not just as a result of me, as a result of people like Chris Wilkinson, CEO of um, Symphony Nova Scotia, Edwin Outwater, who was the music director of Kitchener-Waterloo Symphony, Olga Machalak, who uh, was the artistic administrator at, in Kitchener and also now at Toronto Symphony Orchestra. You know, I get a lot of acclaim for the work that we did for kids on, on the spectrum for concerts that included music of black people, for concerts for people like my queer family, LGBTQ plus two and two spirit community, uh, concerts for them with Thor G. Thor, for prison concerts, right? There were always teams of people that were working on this. And I see that that's been some of the most valuable work that I've done. And I wanna continue it. I wanna do more innovative things. I'd like to make it so that by the time my career is done in 40 years, neurodiverse concerts are like Toyota Corollas and Honda Civics, they're just everywhere. You know, they're everywhere. Of course, of course you're doing neurodiverse conscious. Of course we have a prison program, of course. How couldn't we? It's about making room at the table. I think it was Abato 
that said that the, one of the, the main jobs of a conductor is to give the musicians confidence. And then when they have confidence, then they're able to play their best. And when they're playing their best, your job becomes really simple because this is organic sort of um, collaboration that's happening in the moment. It's really, really beautiful. So lately I've been thinking more about that. What do I need, um, not just beat patterns and stuff, but how do I need to be in order to give the musicians confidence that this, that this performance is gonna be great, that what we're doing is of value. And they know exactly when to start. They know exactly how this transitions go. They know the boundaries of the decrescendo. They know the boundaries of the rallentando and the accelerando. So they know what to expect. And when people know what to expect, then they can really perform their best. That's what I'm, that's what I'm learning and thinking about right now. It's very, very practical. It's almost medical. People can work better when their fight or flight responses are not activated. I think we know that now. Reading some of the um, biographies of some of these conductors who were tyrants, those same conductors were tyrants because they were afraid. And this is not justifying abusive player at all, but they were at times afraid of being shown up or being made to look foolish. So, you know, strike first and just undercut the players. I don't want to do that. Ultimately, music is for people. People aren't for music. I asked Daniel more about his approach in connecting with the orchestra and the audience. And I guess one of the things that helps me is that I worked with junior high school students for a long time. I spent 10 years teaching junior high school music in Calgary. Uh, people are like, oh, wow, you work with them. That's crazy. Like, they're the worst age group. They're, I, they're the best, actually, actually the best age group to work with. And you can't hide anything. You can't hide anything from them because they can read you um, really, really easily. And it's the same with an orchestra. You can't hide anything from an orchestra. It's like conductor gets up in the first minute. Everybody knows. Uh, it's like, yes or no. Yes or no. You see, you can't hide. Um, and it basically comes down to every performance. That process of vulnerability, that's one of the exhausting things about, about the art. If you are an actor and you're playing, you know, some Shakespearean tragedy in which you're a character, a main character who dies at the end of the play, and you're doing that four times a week, you can't take a night off emotionally or psychologically. You have to go there every single time. You can have the right baton technique and you can say the right things, but to be willing to be emotionally vulnerable with an orchestra, you know, if, especially, especially in the types of shows that I started off doing that I do, you know, doing an education show where you're doing eight shows of the same thing twice, maybe three times in one day. And every single time it's 100% commitment, no excuses. And when we're doing these outreach concerts and education concerts, and community engagement concerts. That applies threefold, tenfold, because for everybody in the audience, right? All those people in the audience, it's somebody's first, last, or only concert. You might have a person in the audience who it's the first time they're ever hearing an orchestra and you can take their life in a totally different direction. You know, the conductor is given two really important sticks. One is the baton for the musicians and the other one is the microphone for the audience. So everything matters. Um, everything has to be done at the same absolute standard. And that's what makes the work so intense. That's what makes it so continually intense. And the process of vulnerability, I think it's a matter of will. It's like, will I or won't I go there for these people today? You know, maybe I'm feeling a conflict or I'm feeling tired or whatever, but it's like for the orchestra members, am I willing to go there? Because if I'm not, you know, if I'm not, what can I expect of them? 
Daniel teamed up with Thorgy Thor, an American drag queen and musician who is featured on the hit TV show RuPaul's Drag Race. Thorgy and the Thorchestra was the first orchestra drag show in Canada. If it sounds familiar, it's because that same show came here to the Edmonton Symphony in 2019. We approached Thorgy, and at first they weren't really sure. She was like, how can this work? Like, how can we do this? So basically what we decided was that I would kind of handle you know, some of the education and um, human rights portion side of it, like speaking about the Brunswick Four, those four, it was kind of a spark for the LGBTQ2S plus community in Toronto during 1974. I would bring that sort of information and Thorgy would bring just all the fun of a New York drag show and then all of her talent, you know, playing cello and violin because Thorgy plays violin and cello and viola. The idea was that people come for a drag show, they're coming for Thorgy, by the time they leave, they've gotten Thorgy, they've gotten a game show, they've gotten LGBTQ um, education, they've gotten a little bit of Canadian history, they've gotten all this stuff. So you get more than you bargain for. And that's why the show has been a success. And that's why we've toured it, you know, over the States and all over the place. It's been really, really great. I think the part that had the most personal significance was just having all those people, that community in the room and having it be a place that was like overtly okay. That was really, um, that was very, very important to me. So to have a concert hall where the two-spirit LGBTQI plus experience is enshrined, respected, celebrated, is kind of groundbreaking. It was not so long ago that in Toronto, police were raiding um, establishments where they thought that there were gay people were liaising and, and tracking people's mail and doing all sorts of heinous things. You can't even, this seem like, oh my gosh, is this from a novel in the like, you know, 1800s? No, 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 this is Canada. 1980s. It's not that long ago. So to have it be more safe, especially to have young people who are 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 come to the concert hall and have that be normal. That That is their starting point. Their starting point is a concert with a drag queen and an orchestra providing, you know, hilarious drag hits and modern hits from the gay clubs right alongside Glinka and Mozart and Beethoven. Ha! That I feel good about, if that can be normalized. It was not normalized for me. I had a painful uh, experience of being in the closet. I mean, like we say like, oh, in the closet, we don't really think of like what that feels like for people who are in the closet, who still are, some even listening to this now. It's, it's a painful place. So providing opportunities and spaces where people can be overtly themselves or in introverted ways themselves, that's powerful and that's meaningful to me. My name is Cosette Justo Valdez, and I am the assistant conductor and community ambassador of the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra. My role here is basically to assist the conductors, our chief conductor Alex Pryor, and also any guest conductor that we receive to cover for them, to be present in all their rehearsals and be on call in case I need to jump in and conduct as well as I get my own concerts, mainly educational concerts, Symphony for Kids, as well as I work uh, as a part of, of the artistic leadership of the Yona program. Have you ever had to actually jump in at the last minute to cover? Yes, I remember covering for one rehearsal, but yeah, every time I'm ready, every time I'm learning the scores as if I'm conducting. Like when you're preparing, are you nervous that that's going to happen or are you excited that that's going to happen? Both. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very excited because as... As even Alex Pryor was telling me once, he heard about uh, 
the story of one of his mentors. He had given some laxative to to his uh, chief conductor so he would get a chance to conduct. And it's very funny when I every time every time I I offered Alex a coffee, he's like. Is it, is it good? Should I, could I take it? <laughs> uh, because, yeah, sometimes we are so eager to conduct, right? And I'm lucky that here I get so many chances to conduct. Under normal circumstances, I was conducting a lot. And this year was going to be amazing for me, where I was going to conduct so many, many concerts. It's a great experience to, to see how people approach me after concerts because of being a woman. Actually, last night, somebody m- m- messaged me and she sent me a picture that her daughter drew of her daughter playing violin. She's learning violin and also of a female conductor. And she wrote me, see what my daughter just drew. It's easy to see that it's a woman because she is wearing a dress. And if you ever thought you don't make a, a, a change, you don't provoke a di- difference, you are you are making a difference. So that brought tears to my eyes because I've seen so many girls approach me after a concert, mainly when a symphony for kids, I wear my long, long skirt and purpose for them so that from far away they can see I'm, I'm a girl too. And they just come in, well, they used to come and hopefully they will come again in huge groups where I have to talk to each one of them because they have so many questions. What, what sort of questions do they ask? Oh, well, one of their main questions has been, how much do you earn? <laughs> 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 they are very, very honest, right? They, they want to know. And they want to know what do I like the most? What do I hate the most? And they have asked me if I play all the instruments. So many, many different questions. Can I get you to answer those questions? Okay, okay, good. So, <laughs> how much do I earn? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Second, yeah, when they say, what do you love the most? I normally say the connection, the human connection with the orchestra, with the musicians, which is so powerful every time. And the adrenaline, the, the, is every time it's, it's a feast for me, it's, it's special, I'm nervous, I'm excited, so many emotions. What I hate the most is this role-playing of conductor versus orchestra. I love my musicians, whoever I work with, and I love to get to know them. And now I think more and more is seen as a collaboration type of role and respect in both ways, other than just look at the conductor and respect the conductor and musicians don't matter. That is not the case at all anymore. Another question... If I play all the instruments, no, I play piano. I love to sing. I love to sing in a choir. Do you find it's different to come to an orchestra that you've never worked with before versus one that you know very well? Yes, it's different. Both cases are difficult in their own way. It's like a first date and a marriage, right? When you come for the first time, there is a lot of mystery. There is a lot of freshness. And when you know the orchestra already, well, you know some things that can create a foundation for that experience. And I feel that when you have a good relationship with that orchestra, everything is already so much easier. What made you want to become a conductor? Well, (laughs) I have a stuttering uh, um, situation (laughs) when I speak, mainly in Spanish. In English, you can feel it a little bit. And I had struggled my whole life for speaking. I, in Spanish, I would stutter at every word I would speak. 
So I remember um, I started studying piano and I didn't pass the exam at some point because I was going through a very difficult time. So I was good in all the theory uh, classes. So they decided, well, we can put you in uh, to study theory of music for, to, for becoming a musicologist or a teacher. The only problem is that you can barely speak. So we, you have to work on that. Then I did work on that. And I remember I was playing piano for the violin class, the only professor of violin. He was trained in the Russian school, very, very good professor. And I was playing for his class, for his students. And I remember one day I was talking to some friends in a break and he was there. And I was saying, oh, you know what? I, I don't want to, to suffer this anymore, this uh, struggle of speaking. I want to make music. How can I get to make music so I don't have to talk too much? about music. He said, well, you could be a conductor. You could be a good conductor. You are musical. You have character. I don't think you have to speak too much if you're a conductor. You would be making music. And I said, what? You think? So we called the University of, of La Habana, the only place where you could study conducting. And he found out everything. I prepared. It's a long story for that. But then in the process of preparing, I went to the next city where they had an orchestra. And I saw for the first time a live concert, Beethoven V and contemporary music, contemporary opera with living composers being there from Europe. It was amazing. And I was in love right away. I knew, okay, this, yes, this is, this is me. Of course, I didn't know that I would have to speak <laughs> once I was a conductor. And I am learning with the opportunity that this orchestra and this city has given me and my happy language which is English uh, where I I can bloom and I can express myself uh, which is already manifesting in my Spanish language and I love it so conducting has basically saved my life because I can express myself you have this title of um, community ambassador what does that mean <laughs> first of all that means that our orchestra has a mission of connecting and serving our community and my role includes that aspect. I feel I am a messenger. I'm somebody who, who can reach out to our community, who can work with our musicians and our staff to, to get them also to know what our community wants and need. We have a beautiful program here within our organization called Yona uh, Program, Youth Orchestra of Northern Alberta, a Sistema inspired in El Sistema from Venezuela. And it's a mix of musical program with social program. So we, we really can get to get to know different areas of our city and connect with uh, different groups. And I think that has brought us together in a more deep way because children are so honest and they are so real and to work with them is always so special. It's beautiful. It's very satisfying. When I see the kids, how, how they change from the first day uh, in front of the music where they are overwhelmed, when they are a bit scared, after I start seeing them practicing more and more and getting more excited. I'm very careful on the pieces I choose so that they like it, but it's also a challenge. When I see their enjoyment while playing and after the concert, it's so beautiful. ¶¶ 
Okay, and with any luck, my cats won't crash the interview. <laughs> they uh, very much resent being left out of anything. My name is Jana Saylor, and I'm the conductor and artistic director of the Allegra Chamber Orchestra, which is an all-female orchestra dedicated to social action through music. I grew up in a musical home. Um, my mom was a pianist and a piano teacher. So it wasn't a matter of if you study music, it's just like, what are you going, what are you going to study? Probably my musical training began in utero, but uh, my first kind of conscious musical experience was uh, my mom taking me to the Toronto Symphony and she took me to see Carnival of the Animals. And I was three years old at the time and she said, okay, have a look at the instruments and see which one you like best. I pointed at the violins. I didn't know what they what they were, but um, I think they were the only instrument I could actually see from, <laughs> from where I was. <laughs> that path didn't always run smooth either. In fact, my mom ran into my first violin teacher years later and she said, oh, you're Janice Saylor's mom. Janice Saylor was the last three-year-old I ever taught. Um, I, guess, <laughs> I guess I was a bit of a nightmare. I'd never set out or intended to to be a conductor. At, at the time, I was I was playing in the uh, Vancouver Opera Orchestra, and um, I was also holding down a, an additional position with the Vancouver Youth Orchestra. I was kind of the everything girl as the assistant manager. <laughs> of course, I'd taken required conducting classes, uh, you know, throughout grad school and things, but it wasn't something that I, I used on a regular basis or, you know, even considered uh, to be a possibility of, of a career. One of our conductors, uh, you know, had to uh, leave her position on a, on a few days notice and uh, they called an emergency meeting and were, and they were like, okay, would you mind just stepping in for this Saturday until we find an actual conductor that can take over? Um, and so anyways, I, I stepped into the the role for what I thought was one week and then it became two weeks and then it became the rest of <laughs> the season. <laughs> and by the end of the season, I had two other job offers as a conductor. I'd been happy <laughs> in the back of the violin section. And this was really um, an uncomfortable uh, transition for me to be up in front of everyone calling the shots, making the decisions, making those maybe unpopular decisions at times. Uh, <laughs> to be honest, there was uh, I, I started taking connecting lessons because I couldn't figure out <laughs> what was going on on the podium a lot of the time. <laughs> you know, it was it was a mystery to me, um, <laughs> and I was found myself often in you know leadership position, principal positions. And I was like, I need to figure this out to to um, try and decode uh, the the mysteries of the podium and. And actually learning how to conduct made it more confusing. How did the Allegra Chamber Orchestra come to be? A number of years ago, a dear friend of mine had founded Music Heals, and that is a really fantastic organization that's uh, Vancouver-based that goes into communities and institutions and works with them to found a music therapy program. Uh, and they needed money, so I, um, I thought I'd put out a call to my fellow musicians and um, you know see who would be up for um, doing some 
benefit concerts and, and giving the money to Music Heals. And so I put out the call to my colleagues and only female musicians responded. And at first I thought, oh, that's, that's kind of funny. But then I kept getting expressions of interest. And so the ensemble kept getting bigger and bigger, well beyond like <laughs> a chamber group that I'd originally anticipated. I thought, well, if we just grabbed a, a trumpet player or two and... Um, a timpanist, we could do Beethoven. We, we, we actually have an orchestra here. It became really um, apparent from our first rehearsal that this was something really special, that it was a really kind of critical time in um, the Vancouver um, musical landscape. There were a number of issues uh, specifically regarding um, gender and harassment in our musical community. And these female musicians wanted and needed a, a safe place to create and just be musicians. And that was also the height of the Me Too movement. So we realized we had something kind of crazy on our hands in the fact that we were an all-female orchestra. In answer to, um, you know, why an all-female orchestra, um, why not? <laughs> There's been all-male orchestras for, <laughs> for, for decades, decades. Um, I think the fact that we are an all-female orchestra, that in itself makes a statement. And uh, so we had our first concert and raised enough uh, seed funds to um, found a music therapy program for the Wish Drop-In Center on Vancouver's downtown east side. And so um, that is a continued community partnership that uh, we continue to support. And that was always kind of the goal, was that it would be an orchestra that would contribute to the community. Um, but uh, And not only that, but create um, a quality artistic product that would be thought-provoking and profound. Yeah, we're going on to um, five years now, and um, we've raised tens of thousands of dollars that we've um, given away to charity as a fully professional orchestra. All of our, our self-produced concerts have a social action mandate, and we, we wanted to um, make sure that we were always featuring those voices that weren't necessarily being featured or, or heard on the, the main stage. So we have just launched our um, composer mentorship program for female identifying and minority uh, composers. And um, as of a few days ago, our selection committee just came up with our six mentees that will be working with established female and minority Canadian composers over the next three months. So that's really exciting. And they will be taken through a series of professional development workshops, as well as one-on-one -on -one mentoring. And um, at the end of that three-month period, um, Allegra will We'll get together, we'll workshop those uh, particular works and then record and live stream those as part of our festival that will be taking place in June of 2021. So what's the deal with the baton? The traditional answer to that question is, you know, it's an extension of your arm and it, it clarifies the beat point. And when something feels more intimate or um, I know I'm trying to draw more humanity out of the music and out of the players, I'll bring the baton closer to my face so that we kind of feel like we have more of a, a connection that way. Like it's a person to person communication. It's, it's not just um, something that's removed from me. But at the same time, um, when I'm conducting um, just strings and it's very intimate or some new music that is more experimental and not necessarily based on beat patterns, I will use um, just my hands because I feel like the baton in that instance kind of gets in my way. One of my first conducting mentors always said that the musicians should respond to you, but not know why. They shouldn't have to decode what you're doing and be like, okay, so that, you know, they shouldn't have to think they should just be able to be in the moment creating music and you just kind of nudge them along and, and um, kind of guide them or inspire them. My experience as a violinist really 
has benefited my uh, conducting. When I'm kind of getting tied up in my conductor brain, I'll go back and be like, okay, how would how would I do that on on my instrument? You know, how would that feel? What do I want the players to feel? Like, how do I feel this phrase in my body as a musician? So I peek my violin and play through my scores, even like parts that aren't, aren't violin parts. And just to see how that feels in my in my body so that I'm always kind of staying connected with actually the player's experience and what it feels like. My biggest challenge is to be really self-aware. I'm not a trumpet player, I'm not an oboist. And I've always found musicians to be incredibly generous when I go and, and ask, like, explain to me how this works. Explain to me how that feels in your body. Explain to me the challenges that you're having right now. Tell me what you want me to know as a conductor. Um, that's, that's been really exceedingly important to me, especially as a learning conductor, because I came to it a bit unconventionally. You know, I didn't go through the 10 years of conducting school in the traditional way. It was very much experimental and, and learning on the job and, and learning from having these conversations and learning from from others. You know, I've, I've worked really hard in, in, in my own ensembles, the Allegro Ensemble, the Vancouver Intercultural Orchestra, to try and kind of change that perception of what it means to be a conductor and for the uh, the musicians to see me as uh, more of a collaborator and someone to come alongside and facilitate the music making rather than being this kind of dictatorial um, position that it has been and has had the reputation of being in, in the decades previously. And I think that there's no longer any place for that in our, our modern um, in modern society and in our, in our in our creative society. One of the greatest strengths of an artist is vulnerability and honesty. And actually for me, that's the definition of good music. Is it honest and vulnerable? Even if it's a style I dislike, but did that composer speak honestly? My last guest is an exciting conductor and composer and is someone whose voice you might recognize. I'm Alex Pryor. I'm the chief conductor of the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra. I have the great privilege and joy of holding that title. I've been a conductor kind of professionally since I was about 13, and I've wanted to be a conductor since I was four because I remember distinctly being in nursery and kindergarten, and the first day, I think it was, and the teacher asked me what I wanted to do, and I said I wanted to be a conductor. I can't remember if I really understood what that was. Somehow that's what I said. Although my previous dream was to be a ballet dancer. That was absolutely my dream. But I did not have the body type for that. I was very lucky to grow up in London in the sense that there's, you know, it's like every night at least five things you definitely want to go to. So I was definitely exposed to music. But my parents had zero ambitions of me being a musician. In fact, I can quite clearly say they would early on have preferred I didn't because, as you and I know, music is is by no means a financial guarantee. It's by no means an easy path. Uh, Shostakovich always said about composing, if you can not compose, don't compose. It really has to be a calling, which it is for both of us. My, my first actual experience conducting was quite interesting. I had the opportunity to have my first, basically, piano concerto recorded in Russia, and the conductor turned up, how do I put this, uh, tipsy, more than tipsy, and so I conducted it. I mean, I had no idea. I was just kind of, you know, going off imagination. And I'm sure I was absolutely terrible. But the musicians were good sports, you know, 12 or something. And, and it was really fun. My very first lesson with my 
my sort of main conducting professor in the St. Petersburg Conservatory. I mean, he demolished me and I was not prepared for that. Of course, he loved me very much. You know, we were very close. He, he would, uh, you know, destroy me in a lesson and then, you know, walk me to the bus stop to make sure I got onto the bus safely. You know, that's very Russian style education. And then he said, call me when you get home. So I know you're home safe. You know, like very sweet, very caring. But in the lesson, he used to call me the fried chicken. You know, like my arms were too like, Tighten up here, and it's like you look like a chicken wings. It's a plenokzhadine in Russian, fried ch chicken. You know the technique. For the first two years of the conservatory education was basically just conducting slow movements of Beethoven sonatas, not interpreting, just getting a smooth technique, weighted hands, a clear beat pattern, all those things, a sense of where the beat comes. That now, hopefully, is you know internalized and and, and instinctual. So that's what happened. The surprises were many. The first surprise is that it's really difficult. Uh, it seems almost more like, ah, I love music. I have musicality. I'm naturally musical. I'm educated about music history a little bit. So, you know, of course I can do this. Well, you know, surprise, everything that's worth anything in life requires technique and practice. Anything, right? Not just music. The next big surprise um, is, was, is, was just how much psychology goes into the job. Um, you know, that's not what I went into it for. But, you know, there's so much psychology involved between rehearsal technique, how to bring people with you and not push them, but how to pull them along with you, ideally. And also empower them to put their own musical freedom and ideas within the confines of a certain interpretive sort of direction. And after all, in front of me are 60, 70, 80, 100 very highly qualified people. And it can't be all my ideas. It can't be all, I mean, of course, uh, now, you need to be sure, right? Like, I'm really sure of my interpretation. I'm not saying I'm not open to changing it, but like, I don't come to an orchestra saying, well, I think this is kind of a good way to do it. Because my feeling is, if I'm not convinced that this is a convincing, important, or at least desirable way to do a certain piece, then why should anyone else feel that way? Why should they follow me? Why should they try and enable it? And my, <laughs> my conducting professor always said, Alex, remember, the conducting baton makes no sound. Right? <laughs> so I wish it did. We'd know who's the really great, but it doesn't. Um, the occasional whoosh and swish, but really not anything substantial. How do you go about introducing people to new music? I mean, the first thing to remind people of is that all music was new music at some point, right? So, you know. Mozart's Magic Flute was brand spanking new at some point. And uh, some new music shocked people and some new music didn't shock people. And much of the new music that did shock people, you know, one thinks of, for example, Beethoven's Third Symphony, today is considered completely mainstream and if not easy listening, then certainly not challenging listening uh, masterpiece that it is. As this is one example, there's so many, right? So I think reminding about that is a good little starting point. And then... It's a few things. I think it's a balance of not overfeeding, right? You need to make a balance because it's not fair. If people have really come, they really just want to hear a nice Dvorak symphony, and they're the kind of person who just, they've worked a long, hard day, and this is what they know they like, and they've come for a relaxation, right? People come to concerts for lots of different reasons. You know, you have to give them the catharsis they came for. But I think that new music can actually give them that as a surprise but you just don't want to overdo <laughs> it. So that's why you have some concerts really geared at people who are looking for some, ex you know, exploration. And then other times you, you put it in in a way that's organic with the rest of the program. So that's, that's one thing. And then you talk, I think it's the way you introduce the music. Um, of course, in Europe, this isn't a thing. Conductors don't talk from the stage. And I do it if it's, for example, a 
a Langard symphony, who's not a particularly modern composer, but it's not a composer people are familiar with. And so I talk about his life and the piece. And, and so I think if you give people little things to cling on to, do you know, like two minutes into the piece, you'll hear this sound and that's resemblant of the mountain bagpipes of this composer's native Bulgaria. So for them, for this composer, this was a moment of nostalgia. We all have this, right? Where we suddenly have a flashback to our childhood. Things that we all universally have as a species, right? Probably all species, but certainly as humans. And, and, and then you relate that to their life. Um, that relevance, I think, is what makes people open their emotional gates up to it. And then you do a bloody good performance, you know? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I always say that. I always say, like, how do we fill halls? How do we get people? Well, first thing is fantastic concert, you know, with not just great quality playing, that's a given, but, but all our spirit and our telling the story through the musicality, through the phrasing, especially, through the color, the timbres that we find. But it's getting enough people to give it a try. And that giving it a try part, I think, is the hardest. And that's not technically my department. That's not technically my, you know, my job description, but of course it is. It's definitely my responsibility to, to work as hard as I can on that. I'm doing a new, new music appreciation course together with uh, our associate principal, uh, Horn Megan Evans. And the goal is to talk about the storytelling of the music. I mean, all great art is in some way storytelling. Even abstract ballet is a story. It's just not a story about, you know, who went where, but it's a story about emotions and feelings and, um, but it's still a story. Uh, so you talk about the story, you talk about the composer's life and what prompted them to write the way they did, right? You know, like, it's a bit like a good museum guide, right? Where you look at a painting, you're like, well, that's a nice painting. And then, you know, someone says, but how about this? And why did this happen? And then you suddenly, oh, right? Like many more layers open up. Without being lecturing is always my goal because not everyone needs to be a professional musician. And I always say about like new music, you should be able to enjoy it without reading the CD cover. That's a bonus. Great. Interesting to find out. And that's what I'm hoping to do. But of course, good music does speak for itself. And we should, we should keep that humility. I want to give you the opportunity. Are there any common myths <laughs> that you would like to debunk or dispel? I think our personalities are sometimes put into a stereotype. I don't like what I call the mystical maestro mask, you know, which especially it was a thing I think of a previous era more. Let's say 50s to 80s, 90s was like the peak of it, where the conductor was this sort of semi-mythical, semi-deity figure, you know? And that's such nonsense, do you know? It's just such nonsense. We're musicians and we're artists and we're colleagues. And I think that the world is, the conducting world is very, very much changing that way. So that's a good thing. I think a common misconception amongst some people I've spoken to is that musicians need us to play the notes or the rhythm, you know? Like we're not really there to show people what to do most of the time. Um, of course, it's more complicated than that because sometimes we are, but basically with an orchestra, you know, like the level of the ESO, I think a lot of concerts could be done conductorless on, in some way. You know, these are very gifted, very skillful musicians. What we're there for is to unify a musical idea uh, to inspire, I think, um, but to unify stylistically and, and interpretively, to facilitate people to be their best and to do their best, um, and definitely to communicate with the audience um, in various ways, um, and to serve the composer best. I would say, maybe first of all, or highest of all, do the composer justice. I do think a really good analogy of what a conductor does is the coach in hockey, 
or any sport really. I mean, like American football, you see the coaches on the side. They're doing something during the game, but as far as I can tell, it's what they do not during the game that really matters. Or both, but certainly the pregame is also very important, the, 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 the training, the rehearsals, as you, as you might say. I will say it's a quite a lonely job. Sometimes very, very lonely, too lonely. And in some ways it has to be. Uh, and in some ways I wish it didn't have to be. I will sum it up by an advice, a piece of advice I got from an older conductor friend of mine, retired now, a very fine conductor. And I was working in, a, in an opera house in Europe. And he said, Alex, just make sure in the break, you don't sit with the musicians. Make sure you sit on your own table. If people come to sit with you, that's great, but they need an opportunity <laughs> to say how much they didn't like your tempo or how, an, how annoying your accent is or whatever, you know, like you're, 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 you sound pretentious, whatever, whatever they want to say, you know? Um, and maybe it's nice things too, who knows, you know? Stranger things have happened, but, uh, <laughs> but, and it's, you know, there's a real truth to that. I think he was maybe a little bit exaggerating, but nonetheless, there is some degree of hmm, sort of historically maintained kind of instinctual sense that the conductor is kind of a little bit separate. And I don't like that. I certainly try not to reinforce that, but it's somehow there. I mean, definitely there's been times where, you know, in a canteen and I do sit down with the musicians and suddenly they were all laughing and suddenly they're not, you know, just like, oh, weather's nice, you know? <laughs> so, um, that's a part of the job that people don't see. And you know, like you travel around a lot and you, you know, if you have a good concert, people standing ovation, people applauding. And if you're really lucky, what really is the orchestra applauds to you. That's like, it's a really good sign, right? And then you leave the stage door in the dark, in the quiet, and you go back to the hotel in a city you don't know anyone in. And then you go to the next city where you don't know anyone in. And, you know, rinse and repeat. But it's still such a privilege to be a conductor. You know, I mean, that's just, it's such a privilege and I think, we should never forget it because sometimes it's it's hard work, right? It's incredibly hard psychological work. It's sometimes hard physical work. The travel is fun, but tiring. On the other hand, the reward is phenomenal. So it's such a privilege to be a conductor. And I think it's a very bizarre, bizarre profession. It's a unique profession. You're always a, a wanderer and a sort of a kind of a guest everywhere um, to some degree, which has its negatives, which I think are fairly obvious, but also the positives, which is that you get to grow from various cultures and, and ways of life. I mean, I would not have expected before I came to Edmonton that I would be a daily country music listener. I mean, who would have guessed? In this episode, you heard excerpts from Vivaldi's Four Seasons, with concertmaster Robert Uchida as soloist and leader, joined by musicians of the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra. In the show notes, you can find links to where you can learn more about our guests. We've also included the link to the Disruptor Conductor documentary. As well, you can find links to register for our music appreciation courses that are taught live online. Thank you to our wonderful guests, Alex Pryor, Cosette Justo-Valdez, Jana Saylor, Dave Baker, and Daniel Bartholomew Poiser, who shared their time and voices for this episode. This episode was produced in Emasquitchy, Wiskaigan also known as Edmonton, on the traditional lands referred to as Treaty 6 Territory, a place that has been a meeting ground, traveling route, and home for many Indigenous peoples since time immemorial, including the Cree, Métis, Dene, Nakota Sioux, Soto, and Blackfoot, whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence and enrich our vibrant community. This episode was produced by me, ESO double bassist Max Cardilli. If you want to connect with me about the podcast, you can write to eso.offstage at winspearcenter.com. <laughs>